Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme first and foremost by Trevor Dancer. Trevor is the owner of Kingwood Childcare, a childcare and preschool in Devon. Uh, Trevor, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Today. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. It's a real, real privilege to be here. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us as well, Trevor. The um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. <laughs> and considering that today's business leaders are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your operations at Kingwood Childcare. Well, yeah, quite significantly, actually. Uh, but I will be very quick to say that the government, in with their policies of their furlough and their reactions and their speeds initially, helped us out a great deal. And then backed up by our ability to claim for loss of revenue on the insurance, we should be able to come out of this okay. Not brilliantly, but still trading. And at the end of the day, that's all we can ask for. Um, so get that one out of the way first. You know, we are, we're, we're in a survivable position because of how the government have reacted to what has happened to us as a nation. And uh, I'm eternally grateful for that. And um, I think they have made it a little easier. Uh, then it got a little complicated, and then it went back to being a bit easier again. And because of that, we're in a position where we've so far had to lay off nobody and have maintained a decent percentage of our business. So we're okay in that respect. But uh, it certainly has been a very trying year. I think you can safely say that. Mm. It's interesting uh, that um, you mentioned the uh, the government first and foremost there because they've introduced some incredible measures which have really helped businesses through this quite trying period. Um, have, but yes. also there are the critics out there who point at things and say, well, this could have been done differently. Maybe that could have been done differently. Hindsight is a very wonderful thing during times like oh, it this. Is. But I think it when is. we think of this in the context of wider leadership, I don't think leadership comes without maybe getting one or two things wrong along the way and then embracing those experiences as a learning curve. Absolutely right. I think um, reacting to something in real time that is constantly changing, that is constantly fluid, that is unpredictable, is a very, very difficult and nigh on impossible thing to do. And as you know, I'm ex-military. And uh, if there's any kind of situation that's going to be fluid and unpredictable, it's going to be a military situation at some point in your career. And uh, you have to just react to what you see, react to how it works, react to what happens around you. And then afterwards, you have the luxury of being able to sit down, look back, analyze and go, well, next time we'll do it differently if we have the time. And I think that's what's happened here. You know, there's there's no kind really, no kind of leadership, no kind of management that can predict what's going to happen tomorrow when you have a pandemic. And I think you just have to look at, uh, which is why I thought the daily briefings were such a good idea, because mm. when you're standing up in front of the nation and saying, this is what's happened today. This is what we've done today to combat that. And tomorrow we'll tell you what's going to happen when it's happened tomorrow. And I think a lot of people, I, I was certainly one of them thought, you know what, I like this. 
You've got a guy who's standing up here, and he, he's got the he's got the the courage to stand up and say, "This is what's happened today. I've dealt with it this way." And tomorrow, it could very well have changed. And he stood up and said, "This is what happened today. It's a bit different to yesterday, but I've had to do this today." And it's very very difficult to do that, but it's very very easy to sit in the stores and throw rotten fruit at the man, which is what people do, isn't it? That's that's how mm. it works. You know, if you're, if you're not up there making the decisions, somebody is in the crowd booing you and jeering you because they think you've got it wrong. But they're not the one having to make that decision. And I think that's that's leadership and management in a nutshell. You know, mm. you have to get up and make the decisions and then everybody will criticize you for making them. Mm. A lot of people won't criticize you. I mean I, I, I can't criticize I mean I don't think it's Boris Johnson. It, it I, you know, it, any prime minister would have had the same issues. Any, you know, and I'm sure Mr. Blunkett, being the education minister of the past, would agree with me here. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what party you're in. Any person who has to stand up and do the things that have happened in the last six months would have the same. You know, if it was Mr. Starmer standing up there every day doing it, everyone would be saying the same things to him. So I think, you know, leadership and management-wise, okay, it could have been handled a little better with hindsight, but as it evolved and unfolded in real time, mm. I think we've done, I wouldn't say brilliantly, but we've done okay. And we've learned and we'll progress. It's interesting, certainly, that you uh, mentioned the uh, the televised uh, TV briefings as well there, Trevor, because that sort of mm. culture of transparency that's come as a result of that, that is something that is likely to continue with the announcement that this autumn televised daily briefings from Downing Street will be returning, um, essentially. Well, that's just right, they're coming back affairs. on there, yeah. Exactly right, yeah. So that's mm. certainly something to be going on with, certainly considering the importance of transparency within their leadership, for sure. And we talked mm. a bit there about how we have learned an awful lot from this. Um, in your case, um, would you say that there is anything that this experience of crisis management, if we call it, that has taught you in your leadership role? Um, yes, very much so. Um, there, there's, a, there's an old military expression, basically, store for war. You know, you you harvest what you can, you keep it, you keep it in reserve, and when you need it, you've got it. And I think that's the one thing we've learned here. You know, it, whatever we can now save and, and put away and scrimp and save and put away, we will. Because in the future, if this happens again, and I have a suspicion it will happen again, we will need to have a reserve and the one thing I have learned about this since March till now is reserves. You know, when mm. when the when the Falklands War happened in 1982, and I was a very young man in the Royal Navy at that point, we saw firsthand what reserves we had because they stored those ships up and they got them out there in three days flat. And the reserves that we had available were incredible. And again, we've shown it again this year, the reserves that we've had and the ability to deal with a crisis is amazing. But we have to learn from it and we have to make sure that next time when it happens, me as a small business owner, I need to have a reserve. So I need to start saving for a rainy day, to coin a well-known expression, and make sure that next time, if it's raining, I've got that umbrella. That's what I've learned from this more than anything else. 
Mm. And it's backed also by 10 years experience in the um, the childcare sector, of course. I believe Kingwood was founded, of course, back in mm. 2010. But as you mentioned already, yeah. your background before that was in the military, 25 years in the, uh, the submarine service. Would you right, say yeah. there are any elements of leadership from that military career which you've been able to essentially transfer into um, the career you have now? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. No, and all of it, actually. Leadership is leadership, whether you're you're managing the crew of a nuclear power submarine or whether you're managing Tesco. It doesn't really matter. You know, at the end of the day, it, you, your style of leadership and management will, will dictate where your business goes or your career goes. And I think that they're, they're, they're almost identical in many respects, especially now in, in, in this sort of stage of the 21st century. There is, you know, the, the style of leadership and management that the forces now teach is very, very similar to the style of leadership and management that's out here in the civilian world. And I think it's a very good thing that they do because it, you're kind of now being prepared all through your military career to leave with management skills. And I like that. Mm. I think that's a very good thing to do. So, yeah, it's um, the, the one thing the military will teach you more than anything else is crisis management. And um, the, the, the difference between management in a crisis and management in an everyday occupation is that you have to think very, very quickly on your feet, as did our prime minister this year. You have to think very, very quickly on your feet and you have to think to yourself, how am I best going to deal with this? How am I best going to do this? What are my options? These are my options. Which is my best option? Take the best option. Hindsight might say to you, oh, that's how you could just take the other one. But hindsight is for historians and good critics. In real time, when you're managing something like this, or even a small business like mine, in real time, the decisions are made on based on what you see. And I think that's as good a management as you're ever going to get, mm. personally. And something that's also incredibly important in the context of the forces and indeed the wider world now in the uh, the 21st century is mental health. And that's something that's been oh, yeah. thrust well back into the limelight by the COVID-19 mm-hmm. situation, particularly the social isolation element of the lockdown. Just how mm. important is mental health in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of those around you as well? Oh, vital. Absolutely vital. When we furloughed our staff, and we were very quick to do it, actually. We shut our setting on the 23rd of March very, very quickly. We just made the decision on that Monday evening. And they did, the staff and everybody didn't come back at all on the Tuesday morning. And we stayed like that until literally until May the 4th. Um, and during that time, we had virtual coffee mornings with our staff. We made sure they got together with each other virtually. Zoom and Microsoft Teams became the new uh, a way to communicate, and we were in constant touch with everybody that we'd furloughed to make sure that they were okay. We had people who were shielding. We had one young lad. We have five men work at Kingwood Childcare, which is incredible. You know, having one man is, is, is amazing, but having five male staff here is brilliant. And uh, one of those male staff went and lived in a tent <laughs> in a field because he was worried about his mum and dad who were quite vulnerable and shielding. So he moved out of the family home and went to the field next door and lived in a tent. So his mental well-being was mm. one of the highest priorities we had. And uh, bless him, he, he came out of it very, very well. And um, But it, the mental well-being and the mental health of people is as important, if not more important, than their physical well-being. 
thing is if you have a physical injury, you can actually see it and you can deal with it. If you have a mental injury, if you have a mental issue, you can't. And it takes a very skilled practitioner to be able to sit down with somebody and get that issue to the fore. And that's why we were so concerned about our staff because they are, some of them are very young, very vulnerable, uh, not vulnerable as in uh, vulnerable to exploitation or anything like that, but very vulnerable to uh, to panic and, and seeing, you know, fake news and, and, you know, the Facebook generation. And we wanted to make sure that they weren't, you know, scared and panicked. And we wanted to make sure that they were okay and, that, you know, they could ring us at any time and, some of them still lived at home with their parents, and we made it plain to them that their parents could ring us as well. And we wanted to make sure that our staff were on furlough were as comfortable as they possibly could be, physically and mentally. And uh, it's a really good question, actually, because I think mental well-being is vital, absolutely vital. And we have some excellent practitioners here. In fact, they all are. And what we didn't want to do was lose any of them. Mm. And we've so far managed to get through the crisis without laying anybody off, which is amazing. And um, because we're a very outdoor setting and because we're very outdoor orientated, the parents have a great deal of trust in my wife and I to run this. Uh, she's actually the brains of the operation. I'm sort of, you know, more the glamorous front, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> But Claire, my wife, she is uh, she's the primary school teacher, and she is the lady who knows how to do this properly. And she is the lady who runs the show, who makes the the decisions based on the children. And we've always been an outdoor setting, so all our staff are very used to going out on trips, very used to taking children out. And we didn't want to lose any of them because they're so used to the way we do our business. It's quite unique how we do it. And we didn't want anybody to feel like there wasn't a job for them to come back to. So managing them on furlough was actually a very, very challenging task. And I think we did okay, actually. They're all coming back now. And the numbers of children coming in are picking up again. We've had to make some huge changes to the way they enter our building. You know, we've had to put new doors, <laughs> new gates in doorbells outside so parents can ring doorbells so we come out to pick children up they don't come in the parents don't come in the building anymore uh, we're having a balcony built so that we can access um, the, the, the toddler room from the outside you know, so there's all these changes going on that need to be managed and so that the staff feel safe the parents feel safe and most of all the children feel safe so yeah managing managing it has been a very interesting and very challenging thing to do and it shows the importance of communication in leadership and particularly during this time leadership from a distance doesn't it yeah yeah hands-on management is 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 quite easy in the respect that you're you're dealing with the people face to face but doing it digitally (laughs) doing it on the internet can be very difficult and um I would say now it's the new normal. It's very interesting this morning. I was talking, I have a five-year-old son and he went to primary school today for the first day. He went uh, to his local primary uh, here up up Lowman Primary School in Devon. And my my younger daughter started secondary school today in year seven at Uffcombe Secondary School. And what was very interesting was my older daughter, who's 13, uh, was talking about uh, social distancing to them. 
And I found that quite fascinating that my 13-year-old is now aware of and treats social distancing as the new normal. Uh, so, you know, even these young teenagers are managing the situation naturally. And I find that to be amazing. And, uh, you know, my, my little five-year-old son, he's, well, he'll be five in October, and he's already telling people, you know, don't come close, you know, you have to stay there, and all this kind of thing. But he'll play with his peers, but he's aware of the fact that the adults can't come close. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, again, excellent management, really, when you look at it. Because they are growing up with this already and they're evolving into it already. And I think it's quite fascinating. And, you know, they, they each wear their masks now when they go into shops, they automatically put them on. And uh, it's quite interesting to watch. And I think they're going to evolve into this naturally. Whereas we, me being 55 years old, I'm going to struggle with this a little bit because it's not the norm for me, mm. but for them it will be. And it's how you manage things, and that's a good example, I think, of how you just naturally manage a situation that you're in by naturally evolving into it. And I think it's it's amazing. Absolutely. The ability to evolve and adapt to yeah. incredibly yeah. important uh, facets of leadership in themselves. Um, mm. It's interesting you mentioned the uh, the new normal, uh, Trevor, because just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, I would like to talk about that just a little bit more. We know that over the next 12 months, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new way of living yeah. and working. Um, well, hopefully during this time, we may have a cure, we may have a vaccine and be able to shrug the pandemic off forever, one hopes. But during the next 12 months, what is next for you and for Kingwood Childcare and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? If 12 months from now I can look back and I have a business with the same number of employees and the same or similar turnover and I'm paying my way with my taxes and uh, all the infrastructure that goes with running your own business, I will be a very happy man. You can ask for no more than that, really. And if if we can be 12 months ahead now looking back, and I am where I am now, I'll be quite happy with that too. I don't, I have no expectations of expansion or anything else. I just have an expectation of still being able to practice childcare and to be in business still. That's it. Because we don't know what the next 12 months are going to bring. The last 12 months have certainly been very, very interesting. And you know, as we discussed earlier on, you know, that, that, that proverb of you know, may you live in interesting times, I think we are definitely mm. living in interesting times. And I think the next 12 months are going to prove quite crucial. Uh, whether or not we do get a vaccination, I don't know. Uh, if we do and we can immunize ourselves against this thing, then that would be amazing. If we can't, then we'll have to manage that again, won't we, as, as, as people, as as business owners, as business leaders, as politicians, as prime ministers, presidents, we're going to have to look at it across the board, across the world, and manage it as it evolves again. But for me, for the next 12 months, I would just like to be able to keep my staff in work. Because um, it's actually it, you don't actually think about this until it actually happens, like it did in March, and you suddenly think, there's 30 or 40 people here relying on on, mm. on Claire and I for their mortgages, for their welfare, for their well-being. It's quite a shock, actually. And then you multiply that up into like you know, vast 
business conglomerates, and you know, they have tens or hundreds of thousands of people relying on them. And you know, for me as just a normal person walking down the street, you know, it was quite a shock to realise that there were, you know, forty odd people relying on me, uh, and and my wife. Uh, and that's a great leveler. I think that everything into perspective. So a year from now, if those thirty or forty people are still being paid by me, and they're still in their homes and they're still employed, I will consider that to be a great victory. I really will. Yeah, and, uh, considering how much unemployment is currently going on around the country, and I feel for them, I really, really do. And how many businesses are going to the wall? If, if I'm still here, I'll consider that to be the biggest victory of all. And let's certainly hope that that's going to be uh, the uh, the case uh, for sure. Um, we are unfortunately just about out of time on the programme uh, today, no, no Trevor, but I have to say it's been a real pleasure and also an incredibly enlightening experience having you joining us no, on the, uh, the programme. And I actually think it would be wonderful if at some point in the uh, the next year or so we could catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see oh, how absolutely. things are coming along. I would absolutely love to. It would be a real privilege, Jim. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. And most importantly as well, until um, we do hopefully touch base again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. And that, of course, extends to your colleagues and family. Yes, we will. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'll speak to you again soon in the future, I hope. I was speaking on the programme today to Trevor Dancer, owner of Kingwood Childcare in Devon. Coming up next on the programme today, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. All of that is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I've wanted to bury it, and I'll be absolutely 
I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is... is uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, as the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making it. It's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap 
and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach. It's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. 
then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf who's then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into the coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing today, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, 
there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, well, you were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football, I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, "Come and have a trial at this club or that club." Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter, so that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about as I, I kind of put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the 
sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egbert in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got Norton and Norton on out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players and Banks he was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time of the globe and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I felt it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success that club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, because I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.